Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Professor Amit Gandhi. Uh, he comes to us from the University of Wisconsin and also Microsoft. He's an applied economist specializing in industrial organization and econometrics, which I don't know what that means, but I guess it's using numbers to describe economic principles is my guess. So we're going to talk about his work. So Amit, thank you for coming. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And uh, one small correction there is that I've moved from the University of Wisconsin to uh, the University of Pennsylvania, but did used to be at the University of Wisconsin, which is a beautiful university located, of course, in Madison, Wisconsin. But uh, yeah, but, but, but both excellent places. Oh, and are you now at the Wharton School of Business in Pennsylvania or where are you? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a appointment both in the economics department at in the college and the uh, the marketing department at the Wharton School. So it's it's a uh, two department sort of existence. But yeah, it's it's very exciting, very exciting uh, intellectual home to be located. Well, good. So what's your research about? What are you working on? I uh, do really a lot of work at the intersection of using economics and economic principles for real world decision making. And so I'm, I'm principally interested in, in sort of bringing data structures to bear on how those decisions get made, whether it be a firm trying to figure out how to price or um, situate a product in the marketplace, or it may be a government um, agency trying to um, regulate or manage laws and policies pertaining to an industry, or it could be a consumer, a household trying to make, you know, financial and, you know, home life, work life decisions for um, the household. I, th I think in all those domains, there are economic decisions that are central and one of the exciting sort of innovations of the last you know, 15 years certainly is the fact that 
there is now data that exists that can be you know explicitly brought to bear to make those decisions um, work better in practice. And so a lot of my research is how do you kind of hook the data into economic models and kind of connect them to the domain tr- that you're trying to impact. Which one of those you know really depends on the decision at hand, but, but that's kind of the broad swath of my research. And so it really forces you know, me to bring together ideas from what is classically called econometrics. And I guess we can talk certainly more about what is the, what is the true definition of econometrics, but sort of, you know, classical econometrics, economics is, is usually kind of conceived in textbooks and taught in universities, but then a lot of this exciting progress that's being made on, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence and, and big data systems. You talked about a lot of different topics. What in particular have you, do you feel like you've gained some unique insights into even if it's a very small, narrow set of behaviors, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I think, I mean, certainly where I am, I mean, I think as I think about my arc, I sort of think about it where I was seven years ago before I joined Microsoft and then kind of the world um, since then. I think one thing that is prominent for me, at least, is the fact that in many domains, let's call it just a simple product purchase decision someone's buying a unit of, of some widget from a store, you know, when you sort of think about the deep drivers of those decisions, you know, what should it be, say, price, you know, <laughs> how much does it cost? Uh, what is the utility of that product in your overall lifestyle or your overall existence? You know, those are sort of sometimes we can think about as the deep drivers. And I think a lot of my work was really measuring the impact of those deep drivers on behavioral outcomes. And I think one thing that I've started to discover certainly more now than ever before is that the deep drivers are important, but there are many other factors that sort of don't really seem to matter from an economic prism, you know, just sort of like the idiosyncrasies of the environment in which the decision is getting made. You know, it could be, let's just, for, for lack of a better word, let me call it color of the label. You know, so the color you mean, of the You label. mean the, the context of the decision? Yeah, what do you yeah, mean? yeah, exactly, exactly. Sort of just random factors that might be pertinent in that moment, right? In that moment that, that are not really part of the sort of deep principles behind why that product or that decision is going to generate long-run value. And I think in a lot of classical economics, we, we we sort of tended to discount those factors. You know, there may be some noise, you know, so, so your choice, I, I guess this could be a, a Richard's choice, might be, you know, your your rational economic sort of outcome, plus, you know, some noise that may be um, introduced in that moment. And then obviously, if you have like a noise term, you know, you would think that in the long run or over the course of many decisions, that noise term kind of averages out to zero, right? Because you have, you know, if, if, if it's, you know, if it's the rational choice plus a coin flip, then, you know, the coin flips net out to zero, but then the rational choice kind of prevails sort of in, in the long run of things. And I think one thing I've certainly learned and appreciated and, and, and what I found surprising is that especially if you take that thought process and don't apply it to Richard sort of buying widgets at a store, but take an enterprise that's spending billions of dollars on investments and maybe it's cloud consumption, you know, and you put that same lens on there, you would presumably think those random factors should matter even less to a, to a large firm that has a lot of stake in the ground and, it, and it's applying a lot of technology and, and business process to making that decision. All those random factors should sort of seemingly play even less of a role and net out even more to zero than we would um, 
that, that we would expect. And one thing I think I have certainly learned. Well, I don't. That, I mean, it, yeah. inside of a large, I was just thinking about organizations. I mean, they're not a hundred percent cohesive. They're made up of individuals and individual department heads, and yeah. they're busy trying to maximize their production. So I don't. I would highly doubt that there's enough communication that a big business moves and acts as one unit. It probably acts as like the separate desires of smaller units, you know, or even individuals. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the organizations themselves are are decentralized ecosystems of distributed intelligence in many ways, and it's it's actually quite remarkable when you kind of unpack organizations to just sort of even imagine how is any central coordination uh, functioning here? So how, you know, there's sort of discipline from the marketplace to some extent, but, but yeah, so I, yeah, you're, you're right. You could cut in both directions, certainly. Like you introduce the additional complexity for an organization. Maybe it works even worse than if you just have a single mind who's kind of driving the decision. But at the same time with the organization, you have a lot more resources and assets that are sort of being brought to bear to make things presumably maybe um, more intelligent. Um, so anyway, I think I think that the, the key thing for me recently has been just when we look at the data and kind of recognize that those factors play a role, right? Kind of the noise in the environment, the noise in the system sort of has impact on the outcome. You know, it, it impacts what you buy. It impacts um, how firms invest, how they, how they purchase. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time looking at how institutions and organizations um, digitally transform. So how do they go to the cloud, for example? And I think one thing that's really hard and where I've been trying to spend more time sort of unpacking is when, you know, when we discover those, those, those factors that don't really have a connection to deep profits or deep utility, what do we do about them? You know, is, do we kind of, you know, especially if you're thinking about this from, you know, predictions and, and trying to design policies. I mean, do you, do you want to try to design choice architectures that kind of make those things go away? Or do you recognize them as part of the human condition and build your product strategy in such a way as to accommodate them? And I think that's, it's a really hard issue, both technically, empirically, but then also kind of philosophically as to, as to what's optimal. And so a lot of my research, I think, as of late, has been really wrestling with, with exactly that idea. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Well, what are you uh, able to add and at what level and in what context? Like, you know, research, are you helping organizations make better decisions or are you more on the understanding side? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple layers to it. One is certainly, certainly just empirically understanding behavior is critical to decision making. And I think a lot of the modeling that happens industry, it, it often doesn't, you know, it models the data, but it doesn't model the decision agents behind the data. And so that, that tends to miss an important part of the story. And certainly, I think if you took the position 
that the the world is what it is. You know, Richard acts however Richard acts, and and if you are in, if you are influenced by noise, I'm just going to accept that as part of your uh, behavioral model. But I do want to understand it so that I can I can I can design products that that suit your needs. I think that's sort of position A, and I think I've certainly started with with using that approach. But interestingly enough, it's it's usually not nearly. I think one one learning for me was that. It's not nearly as sophisticated as it sounds. I mean, when I, when I lay that out, just in terms of terminology, it sounds like there's some magic wand being applied to sort of build these models. And, and oftentimes they're just incredibly simple, right? It's very, very simple models that just capture what's the Y, what are the Xs, how do they relate to each other, what are the data points, and just sort of putting that thought process together in a very explicit formal manner that's fairly new still in the world of uh, business strategy and product development. And so I think that's like issue A that that's certainly been of, of interest to me. But then situation B, um, and I apologize for some of the noise here in the background, is yeah, just re- really from a research and insights perspective, like how do we think about these decisions if they're going to deviate from the traditional economic uh, canonical norm? I mean, one example I can give you the, uh, on, on the research topic I've been uh, hitting as of late is, is actually looking at something as simple as insurance decisions. So if you start looking at how people buy insurance, you know, what's the simplest way to look at it is that you have some risk of an outcome happening to you of some sort. So let's take car insurance. You might get into an accident with some probability. Let's call that probability P. And then you can buy insurance to insure against the bad outcome happening to you, right? So that's kind of the basic way insurance works. And so if you think about the rational structure of choice, insurance should be driven by two things then, right? Kind of the, the, the cost of getting into an accident, what would happen to you, what are, what are those sort of calamities? And then P, which is the probability of, of actually getting, in, getting into an accident, right? And so one thing interesting then is how you make insurance decisions can potentially depend on on how you understand probability now, right? Like, how do you think about risk in your environment um, would actually have an impact in how you sort of make those 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 insurance decisions? And one one simple example is, you know, imagine that you had a, a risk. Let me just say thirty percent of getting into an accident. So that's point three, you know, thirty percent. So if that's how you thought about your risk, you know, there, there's a lot of kind of classical economics, expected utility theories, what it's sometimes called, that would tell you kind of your optimal willingness to pay for insurance. And then you could, you could, you could gauge your willingness to pay against the, the price in the market and decide whether insurance is uh, optimal for you or not. So that's kind of a very nice textbook way of looking at things. But of course, in the real world, probabilities are not written down on a piece of paper, right? Like <laughs> you, you can't go to your computer and say, hey, well, well Nowadays, with machine learning and AI, maybe you can increasingly go to your computer, but typically probability is not written down on a piece of paper. So you have some mental perceptual model of probability of getting into an accident or what is your risk of facing an accident? If that probability is not written as a single number, what if it's present? What if it's expressed in your mental model in a different way? My, my risk really lives in a range. It could be anywhere between maybe not 0.3, but point, let me just say between 0.2 and 0.4. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And, and I'm not sure where it lives in that range, but it's somewhere in that range of 0.2 and 0.4. Well, a perfectly rational economic agent, if it, if it knows nothing more than the risk is between 0.2 and 0.4, well, the midpoint of that is 0.3. And then that way of understanding 
the problem from a risk perspective should be completely mathematically equivalent to the first problem, which is that your your risk is actually 0.3. But when you actually go and give people these problems, like, hey, make it make an insurance decision in the presence of knowing that your accident probability is 0.3 or make an insurance decision in the presence of knowing your accident probability is only between 0.2 and 0.4, they actually make decisions in a very, very different way, right? In a way that kind of can't be um, ultimately rationalized by, by these classically rational sort of economic models. And so that, that's sometimes, you know, what we sometimes call framing or, or sort, of, uh, sort of information effects. But they're really powerful and they're really rampant. And so one thing I've been doing is just sort of documenting how that works empirically. Just ha- forget how it should work. How does it actually work in terms of people's real decision-making when they're dealing with situations of uncertainty and risk, right? A lot of problems you face uncertainty and risk, right? So you have to sort of process something called a probability, but probability itself is a mathematical concept, right? It's, it's sort of something we learn from math, but the way your brain and your perceptual systems internalize risk may not equate to the mathematical tenets of probability theory. And so, so that creates a disconnect. So that, I think that's issue A, but then issue B is if it does create a disconnect, what can and should we be doing to bridge that disconnect. So so let's just go with the insurance example for a second, which I think is kind of interesting. One thing that's that's funny about modern AI and machine learning, and if you look at how insurance companies um, work, is that they have immense data, right? They have, they have, you know, in the old days of thinking about insurance, it used to be that Richard had an informational advantage over the insurer because, you know, you, Richard, know a lot about yourself <laughs> relative to what the insurer knows about you. And that, that creates a problem for markets that would sometimes called adverse selection. And so that, you know, when you offer insurance as an insurance company, only the bad types of people buy insurance and that creates, that makes prices go up and, and, and the market behaves in a very inefficient fashion. And so that, that's a Nobel Prize winning concept from some time ago. But if you look at it nowadays, like, you know, insurance companies, and, and the like, they have immense data and they can run models and analyses that would probably pinpoint your probability of accident to within an epsilon range, much more so than you could probably do for yourself, right? So in a weird way, the informational advantages have kind of flipped in such a way that, you know, when I think about my own insurance problem and, you know, accident car insurance is maybe easy because I drive a lot. But if you thought about a much harder insurance problem, I don't know, let's call it you know flood insurance and I move into a new um, community and I've never experienced a flood, um, some type of black swan event, you know, I have no idea how to gauge that thing, right? I mean, I'm going to give myself some, some broad ranges, but the insurer, you know, with their analytics and sophistication can probably pin that down to, to an epsilon range. And so now you have this interesting problem that the insurer actually knows. So how should the insurer then design insurance contracts what kind of information should they give you if anything at all to change the way that you make decisions because now they can impact that through how they present information why wouldn't they why would if they're going to insure a pool of people and they know there's a moderate high risk of them activating the claim why not teach the people what they've found that will mitigate the likelihood of a claim why wouldn't they do that it should be in their interest well, unless, unless, and, and once again, it depends on the actual empirical behavior, but, but well, what if I told you by making the problem more ambiguous at some level, sort of making the ranges bigger, 
it, it sort of enacts an additional layer of uncertainty for you, which really shouldn't happen, right? Because you should sort of like average that out. But by sort of by keeping, by, by retaining an informational advantage to themselves, it actually makes you more likely to buy more insurance, right? So that that's where the conflict lives. But that's a different way to think about it. I think it. only only to a certain level, though. I mean, again, they're not gonna they're not gonna change people's behavior to the point where they're like, oh, I don't need this insurance. But they can certainly, in a high risk portfolio or a high risk product, they can mitigate yeah. people down to a point where they're more profitable. But yet, still, people buy the insurance, you know, as much as they need. Yeah. No. I mean, it really depends on. And what's the objective of the fund? Well, what's the, what's the fundamental goal? But I think the, the, the key thing is that it matters, right? It, 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 impact, it impacts decisions, you know, how, how risk and information are presented now impacts. And this is not typically something in insurance. If you call up Geico, hey, Geico, what's my probability of an accident? They're not going to tell you. They're going to tell you what, what their models saying about your probability of an accident. Now, if they were to reveal that to you, it would be a very different sort of sort of outcome than what is your own intuitive understanding of, of probability and risk. And that's really where these design choices, I sometimes think about them as, as part of product design. An important part of product design is how information is not just the information itself. I think that's really kind of the core of it. There's the information itself, which is, you know, there's the, the raw data. This is, this is, there's the regression model that determines how probabilities sort of are, are calculated, but then how that information is actually put out there, whether it's on a screen or an app or through a conversation. Do, do you as an economist have access to insurance companies' data? Like, will they ever allow that? Because, well, yeah. you know, every, all economists have their theories, but the insurance company sees what people actually do in gigantic amounts of, of numbers. So they would be able to inform economic models and refine them tremendously, I would think. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. And, and I think increasingly, yes, I mean, in, insurance companies and, and this sort of what we call sometimes, because everything is now getting connected through technology, so we would call it insurer tech, they will work with economists now, right? And so, so, so economists, whether through direct employment or through kind of consultation, uh, we'll work with economists and that data exists, right? And you know, that data certainly exists. In my own research project that I'm just describing to you here, I kind of wanted to abstract from a specific insurance company and a specific sort of product bundling and, and look at the problem a little bit more generally or sort of, sort of in a way that would apply to lots of different risk contexts. And so we actually designed an experiment that we, that we administer through a survey. It's actually through a health, a national health survey and so we were kind of able to give people different hypothetical um, insurance questions. So sometimes this is, and this, this is, of course, always a tension between, you know, do you want to use real market data, which sort of is, is, was not designed for research. It was sort of designed for the purposes of, of a product and a market, but we can sort of use it as an unintended consequence for research or data that was designed specifically to address a research question. So I actually went with the latter approach for the project I'm discussing with you, but certainly it's, it's, it's of interest to kind of go deeper and, and tie that into um, actual real insurance data. Yeah, I mean, how would you do research without actual data too? I mean, so when you, when you recruit a cohort for a study, how do you make sure that you're not coloring their behavior or altering it or incentivizing it in the wrong way? It seems like a really tricky thing to do. And it seems yeah. like anecdotal evidence would be far more powerful, at least in, in the world yeah. of economics. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a raging debate. And, I, and I've been, for most of my research, it's actually been connected explicitly to 
what we would call sometimes observational data or field data that just comes organically from market. So it's not artificially concocted in a sense to suit the purposes of a study exactly for that reason, because you want to study markets in their natural environment. That's actually kind of an, an idea that came Milton Friedman, sort of famed economist from, from the 60s to the 80s, um, really 50s to the 80s, often talked about economic propositions, you know, are propositions about the economic world as it is, not the economic world as we want it to be, sometimes positive economics. But, and, and so I, I think it's a, it's a big tension because often the data is not in the form or the structure, it doesn't have the randomizations um, we would want. So it's a hard thing. So imagine going into a, a survey, right? So I'm going to go into a survey and I'm going to ask you questions now. You know, and I might even ask, hey, Richard, here's, here's a gamble or here's an insurance proposition. What would you be willing to pay? And you might tell me some information, but how am I supposed to know that's real, right? Like, how do I know that's how you would act in a um, in a real kind of market economic scenario? I, I hear a lot of economic studies that are like that, but I don't think they're very informative because people don't know. Why not have them work within a system and then look at what, again, they actually do when confronted with these decisions instead of like asking them, because I, I don't know, I don't think people really know. They're not, they're not trained to make those kind of decisions. So I don't know if you'll get any useful data. Yeah. No, I mean, once again, if you, if you ask an artificial question, you'll get an artificial answer, right? So you want it to capture real world organic settings that they would, they would naturally encounter. Um, so one way economists and, and other, other sort of methodologists have designed to kind of deal with that is to actually incentivize the surveys or incentivize the experiment. So in some way, shape, or form, you will uh, potentially experience uh, outcomes associated with your answer, right? So sort of if you want to create an incentive structure that's sort of loosely consistent with what would happen if you were really make this, making this decision in the market. And so I think the key is to make it as sort of incentivized as possible to kind of get your true economic behavior to come out. Um, but once again, like remember, like let's say we wanted to actually have a new insurance product out there in the market, right? Like let's say me and you want to create a new insurance product for, I don't know, Geico or, or, or some company that would actually, hey, it's going to change how we present information to potential applicants. We'll, we'll maybe give them some some risk ranges. You know, how would we even, how would we collect evidence on how to design that product before the product goes to goes is out there in the world, right? So so in some ways, some of the survey and experimental work is important even as a precondition to having the real market data I, at least in my opinion so what um is there any experimentation you're doing or research that you're really excited about that's up and coming yeah yeah no i, I there is yeah i mean it's it's getting into uh, i think right now one of the the big areas i'm trying to understand more is sort of in the same vein is is how do we get more variables to sort of inform how we're thinking about consumer firm behavior. And that's just super simple example is just, let's go to the uh, the buying products from the grocery store uh, analogy. So, you know, and we talked a little bit before about these deep economic drivers. So I, it might be, um, let's say you're buying cereal. I might look at price, right? You know, price all sort of plays a role, but I might, you know, how, how would I capture the other attributes of cereal that, that might impact your behavior, you know, one, one obvious thing to do is to say, well, what are the deep drivers of cereal that matter to Richard? Well, maybe I can look at the, the nutritional content, right? I can actually just look at the label. And that's, you know, 
you know, looking at the world in the 1980s and 1990s, that's really convenient because the nutritional information, it's, it's very naturally quantifiable, right? I can put it into a, a table, like I could have X variables and everything's kind of measurable and it's clean, right? It's a, it's a very clean way to think about that relationship. So what I've been trying to understand and do increasingly now is how do we sort of take that same driver's view of, of the serial uh, purchase decision and add to it rich, unstructured data. And if you think about when I say unstructured data, I mean, really, most of the data in the world is not beautifully tabular. It's not, it doesn't sit, it doesn't fit in a nice, clean Excel table that I can look at the columns and I can look at the rows. And, 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 and that's typically how we want to consume information for the purposes of economic modeling. And so what if I want to say, look, I, there's a lot more about this product that I know that that's not sort of price and nutritional information. It could be uh, product reviews. It could be the picture of the product. It could be, you know, satellite imagery of the, of the location of the store. And, and suddenly I've got this, this, this trove of, of information that goes way beyond what I think are the deep economic drivers, say price and, and nutritional information. Now, how do you use all that wild unstructured data in the context of a uh, decision model that tries to understand purchase behavior as a function of stuff, right? And so one of, one of the things I've been doing is trying to solve a two questions. A, does that stuff matter, right? Like, is it worthwhile to go, you know, for companies and governments and, and, and the world to go take that world of raw, unstructured, alternative, complicated data and start to like bring it into our understanding of these fundamental economic decisions. And B, even if it did matter, how are you supposed to stick it in there, right? Because I just told you before, it doesn't live in a nice table, right? It lives in these complicated data forms, data structures. It might be in, a, in, in software. It might be sitting in some complicated blob storage. And so the, and, and I think this is also key to, to uh, a lot of modeling for the future is that you know, the way we build the models then are going to have to be tied in some ways to the way that the, the software systems work, right? Because, because the data in some ways is synonymous with, with the software and hardware inf infrastructure on which, they, uh, on which they live. Now, of course, there's a lot of AI and ML that, that tries to do similar things. And I think the difference is, you know, you might get a black box prediction that if you put all this complicated, raw, unstructured data on the right-hand side, you get some some left-hand side um, output. But if you ask one of those black boxes, well, why? They have a very hard time giving you an answer to why because they're not really based on a behavioral theory of, of Richard uh, as a decision-making agent. It's sort of based on a theory that algorithms can find some appropriate predictive model to sort of capture the way you would behave as if you were one of these algorithms um, themselves. And so, so doing both is really hard. Having a behaviorally transparent and interpretable a sort of model of, of decision making on the one hand and b on the other hand being able to pull large unstructured complicated streams of data to bear on the question they're pretty hard i think my preliminary findings and i have been developing a methodology is actually you know my product cycle time by the way and some of my r d it could, it could be on the span of, of, of many years so there's actually a paper i've been developing and I, I, i'm embarrassed to say it for it's now going over 10 years but in a weird way the technology has now finally caught up so that some of the some of the imagination of what we had in mind for this uh, this approach is, can actually technically come to life now with some of the tooling that's available. I think the preliminary evidence we're finding is that the 
unstructured data has immense uh, content and value, like like image data. What does the product look like, right? What what is it? Uh, and and if you understand those things, you can now begin to think about using those in terms of design. Like you know, how should a package be designed? How should it be presented on the shelves? How should information be put forward, which goes well beyond, you know, the raw nutritional content and the price that for many years we thought were the core determinants of behavior. Well, very good. I mean, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research and, and uh, you know, see yeah. papers, et cetera? Where do they yeah. go? Yeah, you know, I, I think I, uh, I maintain a Google Scholar profile. And so I think if you type in my first name, last name, Amit Gandhi, G-A-N-D-H-I on Google Scholar, I think a lot of papers pop up. I have a, a website. It is actually under maintenance at the moment and I, I need to actually get that pop back up but please just shoot me if anyone's interested just shoot me a mail I, we're looking for research assistance research help collaborators uh, industry partners all the time and so uh, really happy really excited to, to discuss further with anyone very good well Amit, thank you for coming on the podcast i appreciate it awesome thank you richard thanks for having me if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.